Here we are again at our study in the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're looking at chapter 2 and verses 25 through 28. I thought we might make it through the end of the chapter tonight, but there was just too much good stuff in those four verses. So glad you're here with us. Let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord, again we thank you for your word. We thank you that it lives and abides forever. We thank you, Lord, that your word is forever settled in heaven and that you have, by your mercy and grace, kept it for us, preserved it, Lord, during these millennia that we would have it here in our time as your people did throughout the generations. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, enliven your word to our hearts and minds, that we might, by the leading of your Spirit, not only understand and know the meaning of uh, your Scriptures, but that we might, by your Spirit, have them applied to our individual lives and together in our communities. Lord, we love your word. We pray that you would cause it to dwell so very richly among us and that we would follow your word by putting into practice the very things that pleases you. So, Lord, we thank you for these uh, words of Paul that he penned originally to the Philippian community. We take them as having eternal truths for us as well, and we bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible tonight. Uh, I have thought about um, working through the New American Standard Bible to see more precisely how well it does in Philippians, but it seems to do very well as it does in most places. I have to say, however, I am not so far pleased, uh, that pleased at least, with the newest New American Standard Bible 2020. Uh, I'm sticking with the 1997 version I think it's uh, far better than what they're coming out with in the new version. But that's just my opinion. I'm going to be working on that more, I'm sure, in the future. But here we are in chapter 2 of Philippians, and we're reading from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the 
furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Well, once again, we are just amazed at the words that Paul puts together as he was borne along by the Spirit of God. And I just continue to emphasize this. I'm currently reading uh, a small booklet that, that was produced by a well-known Messianic group, and it's, uh, it's very disappointing because it tends to undermine the value and the, the uh, accuracy of the Scripture and so forth. And so I just want to again emphasize that uh, God in His good providence kept His word. He told us He would do that. He said that heaven and earth passes away, but not His word. And we're grateful that He has preserved it, that it was indeed uh, through the inspired work of the Spirit, the inspiring work, that men of old spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Spirit of God, as Peter teaches us. And so we're grateful that we can spend this time together looking at these verses and seeing what import they may have for us uh, personally as we walk and seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah Yeshua. So, verses 25 and 26 of chapter 2. But I thought it necessary, Paul writes, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed, because you had heard that he was sick. Paul now gives insight to his own longing and care for the believers in Philippi. Knowing that they were concerned about one of their own, Epaphroditus, whom they had sent to look after the needs of Paul. Again, I just pause to say, we don't really know how communications were made at this time. How did they hear? There must have been people that traveled and came into contact with Paul, and uh, he would tell them of things, and they would carry them to other places and so forth. We really don't know how these kinds of very personal aspects of Paul's ministry or even um, Epaphroditus, how he was ill while he was with Paul, how that was related back to other communities. But it certainly was, and Paul mentions that here. Rather than allow them to be overly concerned about Epaphroditus, he is sending him back to Philippi in uh, order that both he and the community there would be encouraged by the manner in which the Lord had brought healing to Epaphroditus as well as receiving an update report on Paul's own condition. Well, according to one uh, commentator, Ruman, the name Epaphroditus is not an uncommon masculine name in the Greek world of the first century of the Common Era, and apparently it is based upon the goddess Aphrodite, which is in Latin Venus. In the Apostolic Scriptures, Epaphroditus is mentioned only here and in chapter 4, verse 18. Some would suggest that he received his name most likely because he came from a family devoted to the Aphrodite cult. If so, we see yet another example of how the power of the gospel and faith in Yeshua transformed a life from idolatry to serving Yeshua and the ecclesia founded upon his saving work. So I just emphasize that many of us 
have friends, perhaps family members, perhaps even children, uh, who, uh, even though they may have been raised in a godly home or may have uh, been raised in a given church or something, they heard the gospel, they heard the word of God, and yet they rejected it. Well, here we have an example of someone who we don't know at what point in his life, even though he apparently was raised in a very uh, pagan culture, he nonetheless is drawn to faith by God himself and comes to espouse the, the gospel. And we see him here now flourishing as one who is a true servant of the Lord, not only serving the people that he communes with in his congregation, but serving the Apostle Paul. This ought to remind us that there is always hope. Hope is never lost. When we pray for our children, when we pray for others who are unsaved, God can do a mighty work. And we see this time and time again how others are drawn to the Lord, even in spite of the fact that they were brought up perhaps and lived for some time in very ungodly ways. And Paul goes on to refer to Epaphroditus as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Paul not only identifies Epaphroditus as his brother in the Lord, and isn't that, I mean, that shows you that Paul is not setting himself above others. He recognizes, as we all should, that all of us are saved by God's grace. None of us are above the other in terms of God's love. He loves all of us equally. And he draws us to himself and he gives us the faith so that we may lay hold of the truth and by his Spirit bring that into our lives. And he writes our name in the book of life, never to be erased, never to be lost. This is what God has done for his chosen ones throughout the generations, and he continues to do so in our times. As we were encouraging each other at Shavuot in our community here, we centered our attention upon giving the gospel. What does it mean to give the gospel to others, and how can we do it well? We need to be lights in this world. And the darker the world gets, the brighter our light should shine. So he refers to Epaphroditus as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He identifies with him primarily. The first thing that's listed in this list is their kinship in faith in the Lord Yeshua. He says, but also a fellow worker and fellow soldier with him. When Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a fellow worker, this is easily understood for he had come to aid Paul in his imprisonment and thus to join him in the duties of discipling others in the truth of the scriptures. Now we find this same Greek term, soon ergos, and just if those of you that know some Greek, ergeo means to work and soon means with, so someone who works together with you, is applied to Priscilla and Aquila in Romans 16.3 to Urbanus in Romans 16.9, to Timothy himself in Romans 16.21 and 1 Thessalonians 3.2, and Clement in, in Philippians 4.3, as we'll see, and Philemon in Philemon 1, and Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke in Philemon 24. So all of those that Paul congregates with in terms of their help, helping him, maybe they're giving him help to get from one location to another. Perhaps they're working with him in given locations and communities and so forth, whatever. He refers to all of these as his brother in the Lord. Moreover, John indicates that all who work together for the furtherance of the gospel and support those who are teachers are likewise fellow workers in the truth. We read this in Third John verse 8. So here we see the apostolic emphasis upon community a group of people united together in the Lord and who are thereby enabled to accomplish what they could never do individually. It's amazing to me that Paul, who probably stands at the pinnacle of workers for God, 
is still gathering around himself those that he calls brothers. He's not doing this work on his own. This is an invention of modern Christianity where missionaries and others go out on their own. No, whenever we see this happening in the scriptures, we see that there are people working together. There are always multiple kinds of uh, workers together. And we see this, of course, also in the ecclesia, that there are those who are leading and helping to lead together, not just a single uh, leader. But this also emphasizes the apostolic emphasis upon community a group of people united together in the Lord and who are thereby enabled to accomplish what they could never do individually. Well, if the power of God's work is magnified when we come together in a community and support each other and love each other and care for one another, then it is no wonder that the enemy will make believing communities a target of his warfare and do all in his power to disrupt, cause division, and seek to weaken their effectiveness for living and proclaiming the gospel, centered as it is in the saving work of God through the redemption wrought by Yeshua and applied by the Ruach through the gift of faith. It has always been the case that the enemy wants to fracture and disrupt communities. We need to be so aware of that. And we need to recognize that it is our responsibility to care for one another, to forgive each other, to remain confident to be with each other as the Lord enables us to do that, and thereby to gain strength in this community to be a greater and greater light to the larger area in which we reside. We ought, therefore, to be greatly encouraged in our resolve and efforts to promote unity within the local assembly of believers and to view one another as fellow workers, all with the singular goal of being living and vocal witnesses for Yeshua and the salvation He has procured for all who are called to Him. Sometimes I think we, maybe across the board, we have a tendency to think, well, that's not my, you know, that's the teacher's job. I come and I and I have fellowship and I support and so forth and so on. Well, granted, God calls some to be teachers. He gives them the gift of teaching. Others are workers in other ways. But we're all to be witnesses of Yeshua. In all of our lives, where we uh, approach others, where we have the ability to talk with others, or have any influence upon someone else, it's our responsibility to be giving the good news that God has made a way for sinners to be with Him forever. But note well that Paul also refers to Epaphroditus as a, quote, fellow soldier. And again, we have the little word with soon, uh, put together with the idea of one who is a soldier. Paul uses fellow soldier only twice in his epistles, here in our text and in Philemon 2, where he identifies Archippus as our fellow soldier. That such a military title is used by Paul regarding Epaphroditus reminds one of what he wrote in the opening chapter of this epistle, where he characterizes living for Messiah in this fallen world as very often to experience opposition and even attempts to discredit those who are seeking to evangelize others. He recognizes that the Philippian believers would also have opponents who were combative toward the followers of Yeshua, and he admonishes them not to be alarmed, but that their steadfast resolve in living out their faith would itself defeat those who stood against them. So, if you remember back in chapter 1, Verses 29 through 30, we studied these verses earlier. We read, For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, when the world sees us suffering for our beliefs, 
and doing so well. Now, I'm not talking about ultimate suffering where you're put into prison or uh, as there was in the former Soviet Union and so forth and so on. No, but I'm just talking about giving ourselves, giving up something perhaps that we genuinely want uh, or, or feel that we have the right to have or being willing to uh, serve others in a servant's role. When we do that, others will see that what we are saying is our faith is genuine and real. All too often in our modern world, many who claim to be followers of Yeshua have been taught that the life of faith is one of joy, happiness, where needs are met in abundance, and the woes of this fallen world have been taken away and replaced with abundance. So, the so-called prosperity movement in our times was perpetrated and still is among some uh, very charismatic uh, movements and, and uh, groups and so forth, where they basically say that when you come to faith in Messiah, that your life turns into this uh, just wonderful, wonderful life, and things you never thought was possible would come your way, and some would even say that you are guaranteed riches and health and so forth and so on. Well, that's not what the Scriptures teach. Do the Scriptures teach that we do have a very real and ongoing, growing relationship with God, which is wonderful and which is uh, not only fulfilling, but is so pleasing to Him that it gives our life true meaning that it never had before? Absolutely. But in the midst of that, there still can be suffering. There still can be times of woe. There can be times of grief. There can be times when things don't seem to work correctly. We've all been there and we've all seen it. Surely it is true that to walk in the ways of Yeshua as empowered by the Ruach brings great joy and true satisfaction. But this does not mean that the battle is over and we will never again face true battles in our lives. Yeshua himself teaches us these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. We are assured of the ultimate victory. But we must stand firm in the midst of the trials and the troubles that come our way. For we live in a fallen world, and when we are seen by others, to be able to stand and even to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. I don't mean by that that we don't truly sorrow. We do. That's right. But even in the midst of our sorrow, we have a sense of God's all-powering, wonderful hand guiding and protecting us. He says, Take courage. I have overcome the world. How is it that Yeshua promises shalom but likewise teaches us that we will inevitably experience tribulation in this world. What we learn from this is that true shalom or peace is not to be understood as the absence of tribulation, but rather as full assurance that God has already enabled us to persevere through the times of trial and thus to have courage that ultimately the battle has already been won. God has given us the victory. Now we must live even in the midst of trials with that fully in view. And that by the Spirit enables us to persevere, to move forward, not to give up, not to turn and run, but to engage the battle and to do so for God's glory. Paul himself, along with Timothy and Epaphroditus, stand before us as demonstrating what it means to be laborers for God's truth and soldiers in the battlefield of truth. Let us resolve to stand firm for the truth of God's word and to live out our faith to a watching world for the glory of God and for the proclamation of the gospel in Yeshua. If nothing else affects us as we study this wonderful epistle to the Philippians, may it be that we will see how the joy that is so much spoken of in this epistle comes about by a full yielding of our lives to God. <laughs> 
to serve him with all that we are and all that we could be. So Paul speaks of Ephroditus as who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus was a servant, both of the believing community in Philippi as well as to Paul himself. He carried that which the Philippian community had provided for Paul's needs while imprisoned and thus conveyed the love and support of the whole community to Paul. What a wonderful opportunity! Surely Paul was greatly comforted and encouraged by receiving their gift through the hands of Epaphroditus. And we don't know what that gift was, but as I've suggested in the past, it seems quite clear that at least in a good many of the Roman prisons, they were not taking care of the prisoners as they should have. Maybe they were taking care of some, if there was some way that outside people were uh, giving them uh, funds and money to treat their their uh, loved one or their family member better than the rest. But many, many, as we have uh, any history of the Roman imprisonment, many died in prison. And that was okay for, with with Rome. They didn't care. So when Epaphroditus came, what did he bring? He may have brought the ability to uh, supply foods. He may have brought other kinds of needs, clothing, or whatever it may have been. Uh, even, you know, as you can imagine, uh, something so that uh, uh, Paul could bathe and take care of himself and so forth. Whatever it was, it was a gift that Paul greatly appreciated. So here we see a very important truth. Epaphroditus is a sterling example of someone who gave himself to the task of being a servant to carry important communication as well as provisions for Paul's physical needs and in this capacity is extolled for his faithfulness and the vital role he performed both for his assembly as well as for Paul. And what is the lesson we learn from this? Well, it is this. Even what many might consider common or even mundane tasks, when done for the Lord and thus for the good of his people, are important, necessary, honorable, and blessed of the Lord. You see, this is why community is so important. When we have community, we have the ability to help others. Now, I know in our world, in our situation, in our times, some, there are very few messianic groups in some places. It's very difficult. Some are trying to get together in their homes, and I applaud them for that. Uh, but even if we are congregating as we are online and so forth, we have the ability to help one another, to encourage each other, to continue to make friendships together, even if they're long distance. And our words could be helpful, very helpful to each other, our prayers for one another, and so forth. In the family of God, everyone has been gifted to serve. And when we serve each other as serving the Lord, we fulfill our role as a servant of the Lord himself. When we serve each other as the Lord intends, we at the same time are serving Him. Again, speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul writes, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Again, I really have no idea how maybe there were couriers that went back and forth and carried messages. I don't know. We really have very little information on that. It's very possible that there were those who were visiting Paul uh, who also were from Philippi or something and were seeking to see how Paul was doing and that's, they may have taken the news of uh, Epaphroditus back to the Philippian community and uh, that he uh, was ill. So because he had proven himself to be a faithful servant of the community, not only that was what was uh, related, but because news had traveled back to Philippi that Epaphroditus had fallen ill, and it was important for them to know that he was over the sickness. Paul recognizes the angst, the unsettledness of the people in Philippi who were wondering whether Epaphroditus was doing well, or if he had died, or who knows. 
and it wasn't like they could immediately just find out. So Paul recognizes their need, their desire to know what the situation was. Epaphroditus himself was concerned for his community in Philippi that they not think he had passed or was still struggling under the sickness. Remember, they had asked him or commissioned him to go. And if he went and then was having great troubles, I'm sure that the community in uh, Philippi considered themselves to be somewhat um, responsible for what Epaphroditus was doing and what his needs were. Thus Paul makes it clear in the letter he sent with Epaphroditus that he was sending him back and that Epaphroditus was not abandoning him or leaving before the task for which he was sent had been completed. So here, once again, we see an excellent example of the genuine love and caring concern that ought to be characterized in a community that professes to have Yeshua as their Lord and King. May we in our own communities strive for unity and for a genuine love and caring for each other. You know, and my experience has been that when we are able to do that, when we see this really growing within a given community, we should also be ready for the enemy to try to bring discontent and division. The enemy of our souls hates a thriving community. I'm not talking about some mega group that gets together once a week and sing songs and then go off and don't see each other. Uh, I, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about communities that, that know each other, that uh, meet together on a regular basis. And of course, with our messianic approach to things, we celebrate the not only the Shabbat, but the Moedim together. And we have uh, friendships. We see true friendships coming out of the midst of our communities and the enemy hates that because he knows that as we bear each other up, as we help each other, we strengthen each other in the faith and we help each other to win the battle over the things of the world and the other kinds of things which generally would trip up those who claim the name of the Messiah. This reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Galatians. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the Torah of Messiah. Here we are, rightly so, those who seek to live by the Torah. Amen. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to take the commandments that He's given us and to live them out. And by doing that, we're set apart unto Him. And being set apart unto Him causes us to shine as lights in this world. And what's the great way to solidify and strengthen the community of faith? It is to bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? It means to help one another, not tear each other down, not talk between uh, each other about the other person or behind their back, not to engage in gossip and Lashon Allah. No, that's division. To bear one another's burdens is to try to help one another to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and to do all that we're able to do to glorify our Savior and to show forth His greatness. And when we do, what does Paul say? That we fulfill the Torah of Messiah. Was the Torah of Messiah the same as the Torah of Moses? Absolutely. And did Yeshua tell us more about how that works? And give us insight into the Torah itself. Absolutely. So we could paraphrase it to be the Torah as Yeshua showed us its truth. For indeed he, Epaphroditus, was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, Paul says, for indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Exactly what the sickness was, which Epaphroditus had contracted, is not given and remains unknown. We really don't know. There's a lot of speculations, but we really don't know what it was. It must have been life-threatening. All that Paul wanted to convey then was that it was a sickness which was acute and which could well have ended his life. The phrase, sick to the point of death, utilizes the Greek word paraplesios, which carries the sense of 
to coming alongside or near, coming near, resembling, similar. Thus he was so ill that he nearly died. He was at the very brink of death. The wording would indicate that all visible signs indicated the sickness would end the earthly life of Epaphroditus. Well, consider what Paul must have felt in this situation. I mean, when you try to, you know, when you study uh, some of the, the Greek writings and the Roman writings about what the prisons were like, it's the worst of worst. They wanted everyone that ever came into prison to have absolutely nothing, to wish they had never been born. So can you consider what Paul must have felt in this situation? Here was a servant of the Lord who traveled to bring Paul necessary life-sustaining food, we, ex we believe, and so forth, and who in the course of his service nearly died. As if Paul did not have enough sorrow, being wrongly imprisoned and suffering the woes of Roman incarceration, and then this took place. His fellow servant of the Lord, who brought the help Paul so much needed, appeared to be dying himself. What do you suppose was the obvious reaction of Paul? Well, undoubtedly he turned to the Lord in prayer. He implored God to help. He sought God's almighty hand of healing for his fellow servant in the gospel. And so we read, But God had mercy on him. Here, as always, God is the one who overcomes the woes of death and brings healing to Epaphroditus. Now, God does not do that for everyone, does he? Our days are numbered. God has this planned out. And even though we cannot in any way understand the mind of God fully, we know that all that he does is right and good, and that ultimately it brings him glory, which is the ultimate reason for our very existence. So when Epaphroditus was able to be uh, over this sickness and to gain victory over it, God is the one who gets the credit, as Paul writes. But God had mercy on him. Here, as always, God is the one who overcomes the woes of death and brings healing to Epaphroditus. Note carefully that God is not spoken of as obligated to heal, but that he does so out of his mercy. The idea that some special kind of prayer or some formula of spiritual healing is what secures God's healing power is absolutely wrong. And those who teach these things fall into uh, a real deepness that I don't even think they understand. I believe that there have been at least once or twice when I've been in situations where I've been in a church. I just wanted to go. I think one time Paulette and I went together or several times. We wanted to see what this was like. What were they doing in these big charismatic churches? And they were calling on healing and, and saying that they were, that they regularly had healing every time they had service. There were healings. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. Why is that true for them and not for others? And I began to wonder, and I'm not accusing anyone of this, I'm not saying this uh, absolutely, but it seems to me it could well be the trickery of the enemy. Could not the enemy make someone sick? Of course he can. And so when they go through their motions and whatever they is, and the, the enemy, the d demonic forces or whatever, take the sickness away that they brought to the person, what do the people think? We have the power. We have finally found the way to have God give us what we must need. Well, I don't know if that's always the case. I'm not saying that there aren't true healings in places where I wouldn't imagine. God can work through anything, but I'm saying this, that when healing comes, God ought to receive the glory, not some preacher or some faith healer who finds himself uh, all over the internet because he or she has been known for healing people. The idea that some special kind of prayer or some formula or spirit, spiritual healing so-called is what secures God's healing is wrong. All that God does is in accord with his sovereign will 
and for bringing about his purposes. Does he receive our prayers and answer them? Yes, absolutely, the scriptures are clear of that. But we must always have in our hearts and minds to order our prayers with, according to your will. Prayer is not a way of manipulating God or drawing Him to do what He otherwise would not, but rather seeking the work of His hand in our lives in order that He would receive the glory. One commentator, Martin, notes regarding our text, He mentions neither faith nor prayer, nor the laying on of hands any more than He does the effect of medicines or of a doctor. It goes without saying that these various procedures are more or less taken for granted, yet what concerns the Apostle is not the healing itself, but its significance. He sees it as a sovereign, merciful act of God himself. In other words, God gets the glory. God must get the glory if we are to give him his rightful place when it comes to all of our lives, including healing, and giving us our needs, supplying our needs. So, Paul says that he was concerned that the healing of Epaphroditus would happen not only so that the people of his community would not be overly sorrowful, but so that he, Paul himself, would not have sorrow upon sorrow. The mercy of God was not only experienced by Epaphroditus, who was healed from a sickness which apparently could have entered his life, but also by Paul. One can only imagine how Paul would have mourned had his fellow worker and soldier died, the very one who so willingly came as a courier of the gifts from the Philippian community to sustain Paul's life. But did Paul experience joy even in the midst of such sorrowful circumstances? We find Paul describing his own joy in the Lord a number of times in Philippians. Philippians 1.4 Always offering prayer, he says, Paul says of himself, with joy in my every prayer for you all. In Philippians 2.2 we read, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And he says in Philippians 2.17-18, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. <laughs> so here we see Paul in probably the worst conditions one could imagine, regularly saying that he had joy. And what was his joy? Serving the Lord and seeing the work of the Lord come to fruition in the life of those he had ministered to. So how do we reconcile the fact that Paul writes of his joy, yet in our current verse he expresses the fact that had Epaphroditus died, it would have simply been sorrow upon sorrow. Was he rejoicing, or was he sorrowing? The answer is yes. Here once again we learn an important lesson from Paul, and it is this. Joy does not mean the absence of sorrow but the capacity to rejoice in the midst of it. And there are those who seem to think that it has to be one way or the other. <laughs> and what is it that enables the believer in Yeshua to find settled joy even in the midst of sorrow? It is a firm belief in what the Bible teaches us about God's sovereign love revealed in Yeshua and expressed by the Ruach HaKodesh in the lives of all those who He indwells. For God, in His infinite sovereignty and His love for all whom He redeems, brings about that which He deems proper and necessary to conform His children to the very image of Yeshua. This is divine wisdom and love. Romans 8.28, so well known. And we know, and here's the question, do we? Do we truly know and hold as true that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If we do, then even in the times of sorrow, and there's nothing sinful about sorrow, when we're sorrowful over those things in this life which 
are just ought not to be. Surely we sorrow when a loved one passes away. We have sorrow when we see those that we love and care for hurting and having troubles and so forth and so on. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we come to the conclusion that even in the midst of the sorrow that we may experience in this life, we can have a settled, unmovable joy within us that God will bring all things to His glory and final purpose. He says then in verse 28, Therefore I have sent him, Epaphroditus, all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I be less concerned about you. (laughs) Here Paul is more concerned about the Philippian uh, believers than he is about himself. Doesn't that tell us something great about someone like Paul? So when he says, therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. The opening, therefore, harkens back to verse 27 and gives Paul's reasoning for sending him, that is, Epaphroditus, back to Philippi. Surely Paul would have liked to have Epaphroditus stay and continue to be a help to him as he endured the woes of prison, but he thought it necessary to send him back in order to comfort the Philippian community, which in turn would enable Paul not to have added sorrow. For if the Philippian community received no word about the condition of Epaphroditus, it is conceivable that the sorrow they would experience may have been overwhelming. I could imagine that there were those that Paul were concerned about who might have been very young in their faith and thinking that the enemy would use this as a way of causing them to question God's goodness. How can God be good and allow Epaphroditus to die as he was serving Paul. Well, that's possible. I mean, we don't know for sure, but surely Paul realized that if the word was not taken back to the Philippian community, they would be more and more nervous and concerned and even sorrowful for what may have happened to Epaphroditus. There is a question about how the word again in the phrase when you see him again you may rejoice, is to be understood. The NASB has it modifying the verb see, when you see him again. But it is very possible that the adverb pollen, which is the word again, actually modifies the verb rejoice. The adverb pollen almost always precedes the verb it modifies, and this is the case in our verse, though the choice is somewhat ambiguous, if it does indeed mean rejoice again. It is in line with Paul's emphasis on believers rejoicing, in the life given to them by God. In other words, I think Paul is saying, when he comes, so that I'm sending him so that you will rejoice anew, afresh, and in that you will recognize the power of God, the love of God, and the consistent faithfulness of God to those who are his. The phrase, all the more eagerly, translates a single word in the Greek, spudeos, which gives the sense of with special urgency. Some have suggested that emphasizing this to be of special urgency may indicate a change of plans. It may well have been that Paul and the community of Philippi expected Epaphroditus to remain with Paul indefinitely, that is, until he was released from prison or whatever, uh, when the verdict would come out as to whether he was going to be executed or uh, released. And if he had not succumbed to such a serious illness, Paul might not have had the sense that he should send him home. But given the fact that the Philippian community was aware of his illness, but yet had not been informed of his healing, Paul recognized the deep sorrow they were experiencing. Such sorrow could best be overcome by having Epaphroditus with them once again. And he says, And I may be less concerned about you. Here, once again, We see the heart of the Apostle Paul for those he was commissioned to teach and lead. Putting his own needs as secondary, he sends Epaphroditus back to his community in order to comfort their sorrows, perhaps many of them thinking it possible that he had died from his illness. So you could see Paul set aside his very urgent needs of which Epaphroditus was helping him. He set that as secondary 
and sent him back to comfort the people of the Philippian um, community. So I think Paul is here once again a model for all who are in leadership positions within believing communities, for he shows a valid concern for the people of God in their respective communities, even being willing to put his own needs as secondary to the needs of others. In this case, he wanted the Philippian community to rejoice and to continue to rejoice in the mercy of healing God gave to Epaphroditus. Now, in the Greek, the final phrase, concerned about you, actually does not contain the words about you, but simply has, that I may be less concerned. Surely context would naturally have about you as that which Paul means, but some have translated it leaving the implied about you leaving off that, or leaving the implied about you, in other words, including it, and understood the phrase to mean, I may be less concerned. The verb concerned translates the Greek word alupos, which is found only here in the apostolic scripture. So when we find a Greek word that's found only one time in all of the scriptures, um, we have to be careful about how we translate it. Though it can surely mean free from anxiety, as found in non-biblical Greek texts, it seems to me that the ESV's translation of this final phrase is a bit unfortunate. It translates the phrase, and that I may be less anxious. If one is reading only the English translations, then there would seem to be a conflict when one comes to Philippians 4.6, where, once again, the ESV, along with many other English Bibles, translates a different word, merimnao, as uh, anxious. Do not be anxious about anything Paul commands, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. How would it be possible that in our chapter he says, I'm sending back Epaphroditus so that I won't be so anxious? Then he goes on to say, don't be anxious about anything. No, I think the word that is in our verse should be translated as concerned. I may be less concerned. In other words, I will not be spending uh, energy to be concerned about how you're understanding the absence of Epaphroditus. So the better translation for the word in our text would be concerned, which has a positive sense rather than anxious, which is negative. I hope that uh, this has been helpful to you all, and I'm glad you were with us. I know that I enjoyed studying and putting this lesson together. It speaks so clearly to all of our lives in the places where we live. So, uh, again, glad you were here with us, and look forward to being with you again next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians.